Acts 9. All right. Uh, and if you didn't, if, if you weren't here last week, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to, uh, to the, the, the message on Stephen. It, it, ends, it ends this way, and it introduces us to, the, to today's character. Um, this is not on the screen, but let me just read it to you. Um, Stephen is being stoned. Stoned in the, in, the, in the Old Testament sense of the word, not in the 1960s hippie sense of the word. Not the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Steve, so while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus receive, oh wait, let me go back one. So as they're about to stone him, it says this, the witnesses, in other words, the, the men, the religious leaders who are going to kill Stephen, execute Stephen, says they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Y'all say Saul. Y'all say Saul equals Paul. Same person. There's not a name change. This is not like Peter who gets his name changed. This is just Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Roman name. Exact same person altogether. So this is the first time that we're introduced to the Apostle Paul or St. Paul if you're from a liturgical background. This is the one who's going to write more letters in the New Testament than anyone else. He's going to set the world on fire as a missionary to the Gentiles. This is the first time we're introduced to this young man. And the Bible says something kind of cryptic. It says that they lay their coats at the feet of this man named, at this, this young man named Saul. A couple verses later it says, and Saul approved of their killing him. So we're going we're to learn a few things about it, but, but notice this, that, you know, that sounds a little weird. Like, okay, well, why is he like the coat boy, you know? You know, like if I was a kid, I was like, I'd, I'd be the one to like carry the coats whenever guests would come over. Hey, Brad, take these coats to the back bedroom. It's like, was he just like the errand boy? Really? No. I mean, there's a little bit of Jewish background of this that I don't, I don't want to get into, but this was a symbolic action where this young man, Saul, is taking responsibility upon himself, authorizing this. And the coats, uh, some scholars believe these coats were the talit, were, were the talith, were the prayer shawls that, that Jewish men would wear. And on these prayer shawls, on, have you ever seen them? On the four corners of these shawls that they would cover their heads and bodies with, on the four corners would be these tassels. And these tassels would sort of be representative of the names of God, it'd be representative of their authority as men. So these men would often, you know, if they were, um, if they were sort of engaging in a legal document, they would often take their sort of the, the, this knot of one of their tassels and sort of press it in almost as a seal representing this is their, this is their authority. And some, some scholars also believe that, you know, when Jesus was coming into uh, to Jerusalem, you know, and, and the, what we call the triumphal entry, you know, riding on the donkey, and they say that they threw their, their coats and their cloaks before him. That wasn't because it was muddy and they wanted him to have a nice path. It was because they were taking the symbols of their own personal authority and laying it down in submission to Jesus. So we believe that that's, that's likely what's happening here is that they would remove their prayer shawls as, as an act of, sort of as an act of, uh, uh, of, of authority, and they would give it to this young man, and, and Saul would be... In saying, in essence, let the, let, let the blood of Stephen be on my own head. I will carry the full authority for what you're about to do. So he takes this upon himself, and the Bible says that Saul approved of the killing. It's the first time we see him. Um, chapter 8, we're going to skip on past that. We're going to go on to 9. And it begins this way. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous, murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. I love that phrase. I've been thinking about like, oh, breathing out. That's just poetic, you know, breathing out these, these murderous threats. Um, he's got, his role is, is really sort of threefold. His role is to, 
pursue unbelievers. Now, we're going to, let me back up a little bit. Paul is a Pharisee. He's a member of, of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And he gives, Paul gives some of his own background in a couple other places in the Bible. Um, in Genesis and in Philippians, he describes his own heritage as a Pharisee. He was extremely bright, highly educated. He is from like some of the best stock of Hebrew Jewish men. He was trained under a rabbi named Gamaliel, who we have met earlier on in Acts, one of the top rabbis of his day. Paul sat at his feet. He learned everything he could about the law. And because of that, Paul says, hey, I had such a zeal for the law. I had such a passion for the law. Now, I want us to get our, get our, get our heads around, really, this is not a bad thing, right? God's, God, God loves his law. The Bible says that the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. In Acts one, or Psalm 119, it's full of all of these beautiful descriptions about how the law of the God is so good, the precepts of God are so good, the, the commandments of God are so good. So, so Paul has spent his early years, he's spent so much of his time just falling in love with the law of God. This is truth. He reads the Torah. He sees the God of, the, the God of, uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he understands that there's no, there's no shadow of turning, that God is a God of, you know, of order and of and of purpose and of love and compassion and holiness. And Paul says, I love this. I love my religion. I love the being part of the people of God. And that's a good thing, right? But Paul also understands that there are threats to that. There are threats to, to this ordered way of life that, God, that has been around for thousands of years, that they're traditions. And Paul's role is to pursue after these threats, these ones who are coming in to disrupt the way of God, who are coming in as an affront to the law of God, they are, they are, they are in rebellion, just like the, sort of the people of the Old Testament. Some of those were in just such incredible rebellion and God brought judgment. Paul sees himself as an agent of the Lord, seeking to purge, seeking to pursue, to prosecute, and to purge. He's going after these ones that he calls followers of the way. That was what they called the Christian faith in these early years. The term Christians, it wasn't around yet, right? These were just Jewish men and women who were just really off. They decided to abandon the faith and chase after this Jesus the Nazarene. And Paul says, oh, no, no, no. I am not going to let you destroy the people of God with your heresy. So he's breathing. He went to, this is a, still 9-1. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to, to Jerusalem. Acts 22 says he also was pursuing them to their death. He had a death warrant. He was able to bring them back to be tried and to be executed. Of course, the implication is, is that there was a season when he was very successful at doing that. We don't have a biblical record, but it's completely understood that men and women were put to their death because of Saul. Stephen, of course, being one of those. So he's gone, he's gone to, to the high priest in Jerusalem. He says, he says let me chase after these God-haters. Give me a letter. Give me authority. I will, I, will go, I will go to the ends of the earth in pursuit of righteousness. I'll go to Damascus. 
I'll go wherever you want me to go for the sake of the honor of Yahweh. Just give me a letter. We cannot allow this to happen. We cannot allow this movement to grow. We cannot allow the law to be maligned this way. And the high priest says, okay, Saul, here you go. He writes a letter out, sends it to him, go. And Saul is on his way. He's going after people left and right. He's got a, and his job is to purge, purge the Jewish faith of this rebellion. Damascus Road, this is about noon on the way. He's got some men with him. Verse three, as he neared Damascus on his journey, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I've been endeavoring this week to hear this story with fresh ears because I've heard it so many times that it's becoming, uh, you know, a, a little, the, like my, my, my sensitivity to this is becoming dull. So I'm asking the Lord just to, Lord, you know, reveal this to me fresh and new. I want to, I want to encounter this in fresh ways. Two things that I notice, he sees a light from heaven and he hears a voice. And we're going to see a lot of parallels. Anytime God shows up, they're offering these supernatural manifestations that happen. And for Paul, it's dramatic. And there's this light from heaven and this voice. And it says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Pay attention to what it says in verse 5. This is important. Who are you, Lord? Asked Saul. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got it from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. When he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. I remember when I was in college, I was a, one of the classes I was in was on outdoor, outdoor leadership, you know, sort of teaching us how to teach others to use the outdoors in terms of, of, of equipping and discipling and, and leading others. And so we would spend a lot of time in ropes courses, you know, um, and I remember on, on one particular training exercise, we were all to be blindfolded. I don't remember what it was doing. Maybe, maybe somebody was leading us around. You know, maybe we were up in a high ropes course and we were just like tethered in, you know, locked in with a carabiner clip and we had this blindfold on. And I can still now, now some 25 years later, I can still remember just how difficult and disorienting that experience was. Even though it was just a piece of cloth over my eyes, even though that I knew that it could come off just with the flick of my hand, even though I knew it was sort of just for a set season, just that sheer, just that the total disorientation of losing one of your senses, of losing your eyesight, and how dramatic that, that must have felt for, for Saul on the road with a mission to purge, believing he's doing the work of God. Suddenly there's this flash and his vision disappears and there's nothing but black. And to get up 
okay, whatever that was, you know, I'm going to open my eyes and everything is going to be clear. But imagine opening your eyes and there's nothing there. Imagine opening your eyes and it's still black. The panic that, that, that must set in. The fear, the confusion. Why? What, what's happened to me? Did something, did something damage my eyes? And it doesn't go away after five minutes. It doesn't go away after 10 minutes. It doesn't go away after an hour or two hours. And these, these men that are with him, they're looking at, they're looking at Saul, you know, the, the one that they've been appointed to go into lead. They're like, we don't know what to do. We, we, we saw the light too. Our eyes are fine. We don't know what happened to you. We heard the voice too, but we don't know where it came from. What do you want us to do, Saul? What do you want us to do? And Saul, I imagine, is sort of groping around. So he's holding onto his horse. Maybe he's holding onto their shoulders. He doesn't know what to do. He's waiting. I would imagine he begins calling on the name of the Lord to open his eyes again. Imagine he begins praying to Yahweh to open his eyes again. I imagine maybe he goes and finds something to wash the water. I doesn't know what to do. It's just, it's just blindness, blindness, blindness. Finally, I can imagine that after several hours, like, okay, let's just get to the city. Let's get to the city. Let's go and let's find someone that will help us. And he remembers what the Lord said, go into the city and I'll show you what you must do. I want to stop for a minute and just talk about blindness. I want to talk about spiritual blindness. There's a contrast here, by the way. Notice what Stephen says. What does Stephen say? I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing there. What is he saying? He's saying, I see Jesus. Stephen is like the opposite of spiritual blindness. There's no, there's no supernatural manifestation like light and a sound. It's just Stephen is in this open heaven. He's seeing Jesus. But Paul by contrast, isn't seeing anything. He hears Jesus, but he's not seeing anything. This is, this is a comp. Pay attention to this. There's something that, is, that, is, that, is ha- that has happened in, 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 in Paul's life that the Lord needs to deal with. And I think it's this. I think sometimes God will bring about a crisis to also bring about clarity. I think that's what's happening here. I think the Lord is inaugurating this three-day crisis in Paul's life to bring about clarity that he's never known. In other words, Paul, you've had your eyes open this whole time, but you've really been blind. But I'm going to blind you now so that you're really able to see. I think that's what's happening here. The issue of spiritual blindness. Let's skip over to 2 Corinthians 4. Guess who wrote 2 Corinthians 4? Anybody know? Come on, who wrote 2 Corinthians 4? Paul did. Same guy, right? This is years later now. This is after, it's sort of after our story. He's writing to this church in Corinth. And the crazy thing is, once you kind of, once you remember his own testimony, you read these things like, ah, oh, that's where that's coming from. Let me, let me give you an example of what I mean by this. Second Corinthians 4, um, Paul is writing to this church, encouraging them to be steadfast in their sense of weakness, steadfast in their struggle. He's affirming in them their calling to be ambassadors and to be ministers of reconciliation. And in chapter 3, he talks about, he reminds them, listen, even when Moses came down from the mountain, the glory of God was on his face so much that we had to veil over his face. And Paul writes to this church, he says, listen, if that was glorious, how much more glorious is the glory that's on you with unveiled faces? He says, we are being transformed. This is Paul writing, we're being transformed from glory to glory. Look at what he says in chapter four. Um, verse three, 
I want to read verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, I should have this, I think, up on the screen. If our gospel is veiled, in other words, sort of hidden, hidden from plain view to the average person, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God, listen to this, the God of this age, I'll say God of this age. Who is that? Who's the God of this age? Exactly, it's Satan. It's the enemy. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. I cannot help but think that Paul is writing this and he's having flashbacks to his own experience on Damascus Road. I think Paul is writing back saying, guys, I got to tell you, I was blind too. I can tell you what it's like. I was seeing, but not really seeing. I had my eyes wide open to everything around me, but I really missed the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, the God of the saints has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't even see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Think back to your own experience. Think back to your own experience. What was it like? What was your mind like? What was your heart like before you encountered Jesus for those of you that are walking with him? I think spiritual blindness does several things to us. I think the first, one of the things that it does is it elevates. Spiritual blindness el- sort of elevates this false view of self. It elevates our own sort of self-image to a place that doesn't belong. You see that in Paul. And Paul's writing back, thinking about, about his days before Damascus Road. He begins to what? Talk about all the things that he's done. You know, I was, I was zealous for the law. I was, you know, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. I was this, 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 this. Paul knows that part of spiritual blindness means we have such a false, elevated view of ourselves. It also dulls our minds. 2 Corinthians three fourteen. go back a few verses. Chapter 3, verse 14. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant, in other words, when the old law of the Old Testament is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Paul's saying, listen, you know, when you have that spiritual blindness over your heart, your mind is dull. You're not understanding reality. You're not understanding truth. And something else I think that's dangerous about spiritual blindness, we're seeing this in our culture. We're seeing this accelerate in our culture. Spiritual blindness causes us to invert, to invert right from wrong. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Not just to do wrong and say, well, you know, I can't help myself. No, it causes us to invert right from, it causes us to see things that are so contrary to God's law and to say that those are, in fact, honorable and good. Gender, for example, honorable and in the image of God. Spiritual blindness causes us to look at that and say, oh no, that's limiting. And we're now in a month of pride, a month of celebrating this spiritual blindness. We love, we love people. We love anyone. We love anyone. We love everyone unconditionally with the love of Jesus. But there's a spiritual blindness that caused to look at something that God has clearly said, that's not for my heart at all. And for us to say, but we want to honor that. We want to celebrate that. And this, we see this in Paul. Paul is, Paul is pursuing truth. He's pursuing what he believes to be the right thing. He's pursuing what he believes to be the heart of God. 
So what happens is when, when Jesus shows up in Paul's life, the only thing that Paul can say is what? Who are you? I don't recognize you. I don't know who you are. You're not the God that I've been serving. You're not the God that I've been pursuing. You're not the one that I've been reading about in the Old Testament. Because spiritual blindness has clouded his mind. And it's kept him from seeing the face of Jesus. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. It keeps us from seeing the truth of who Christ is. So now let's jump back. By the way, what's the antidote to spiritual blindness? I think it's, I think it's we need to, we have to, by an act of faith, when light is given, when revelation is given to our heart, we have to make that choice. Will I stand in agreement with the light that I've been given now? It may not be full. It may not be complete. It may not be, you know, a total revelation of who God is. But what, with the little truth that I've been given, will I stand in agreement with this? Paul says this. He says, when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Have a conversation with have a conversation with someone who was sort of a 180 believer. You know what a 180 believer is? That means that like they were the opposite of what you and I believe a Christian should look like before they encountered Jesus. You know, I love hearing testimonies like of, of, of Muslims or people in third world other countries, you know, who are just the total opposite. And they begin to describe what happened when they just begin to yield. A little bit, just say, okay, I, I, I'm going to take what you're saying. It's almost like it begins this catalytic sort of response of revelation in their own heart. They begin to see it. It's like this, the more they say yes, the more the veil is taken away. And the more the veil is taken away, the more that they can say yes to the gospel. It's amazing what happens. Jump back, to, let's go back to Acts 9. Sometimes God will bring about a crisis so that he can bring about clarity. Three days of blindness. Three days of being taught to see by the Holy Spirit. We talk about this being Saul's conversion on Damascus Road. I don't think he was converted on Damascus Road. I think there was a three-day process of him coming to grips with what happened to him on that road. I think the Lord says, I need to, I need to close your eyes so that my spirit can help you see again. We don't know a whole lot about what he did during those three days. But he ends up, by the way, going to see a man named Ananias, verse 10, chapter 9. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. By the way, I can't fathom how anyone who takes the Bible seriously cannot believe that we can hear the voice of God specifically. I don't get that. I've had conversations with those who feel like that the only revelation given is in his word and God really doesn't speak to believers in that way anymore. I was like, how? How can you live that way? God is doing it all. He's speaking every day all around the world to his church. He's done that here. He's given many of you these specific instructions and specific words of knowledge. So he says, Ananias, go 
find a man named Saul for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore. So sometimes in this three days, you know, as, as the Holy Spirit is doing his work, Saul begins to say, okay, there's a, there's a guy named Ananias. I need him to put his hands on me. That's the only way I'm going to see a God. I've got to have him put his hands on me. And Paul says, Ananias, go. This fella, this fella Saul is expecting you. Ananias, of course, like all of us, has to remind God of the facts. In case you've forgotten God, verse 13, Lord, I've heard, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. And I was like, I'm not going to go. Are you kidding me? This guy's got a death warrant. I'm going to be the first one stoned, just like Stephen. I'm not going to go at all. God, you got to, surely you know who you're talking about. Look at, what, look at what the Lord says back, verse 15. But the Lord said, Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how, must, how much he must suffer for my name. That's a heavy word right there. The persecutor is about to become the persecuted. And so Ananias goes to the house, enters it. How does that conversation go? Is your name Saul? Saul can't see, of course, groping around. Yes, it is. Are you Ananias? I am. And he walks over and he puts his hands on him. Now look at what he calls him. Brother Saul. That's faith right there. Put your hands on your enemy and call him a brother. That's faith right there. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. There's more of this prophecy. Paul's receiving this. Or or, or Ananias The Lord has sent me so that you may see again. That's one thing that's going to happen. The Lord is going to restore your sight, Saul. You've been blind for three days. Are you ready to see again? I am. Oh, am I, am I ever ready to see again? But he's also going to fill you with his spirit. And I think in, I don't know this, but I think in this three-day crash course of blindness, the Holy Spirit made some things very clear to Saul. So verse 18, immediately, check this out. This is weird. (laughs) Something like scales. Luke, buddy, you're a doctor. And all you can say is something like scales. 
Luke's like, I'm sorry, I don't know what they are. I've never seen them before. It's like it's this sort of physical manifestation of something supernatural. That's all. It kind of looked like that. All I know is that when Ananias put his hands on this man, something came off of him and some, someone went into him. And he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So he lays his hands on, sight's restored. By the way, Acts 22, this is interesting. Acts 22, Paul is recounting his own testimony in front of the court. Check this out, Acts 22. He's telling this same story now some years later. He's going, he's going exactly, same thing we just read. He says this, he says, he says, a man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very moment, I was able to see him. Check this out. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one. So last week I said that the more that we are transformed, the more transfixed we become. I want to flip that around today. Actually, it was the other way around. The more transfixed we are, the more transformed we become. That was last week. The more that we see Jesus, the more that we are changed into his image. I want to say that this is the opposite today, that the more that we are transformed, the more transfixed we become. The more that we are changed into his image, the more that we see of Jesus. I believe that the Lord wants us just to get a vision of him again. I think he wants us to walk in that season of just looking at him. So again, in Revelation 4, worship team, come on up. I was reading in Revelation 4. Boy, it's one of my, fa- it's one of my favorite parts of, the, uh, of, of God's word. Revelation 4, it's another vision of an open heaven. <clears throat> it's another vision of what's happening in, 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 in the heaven in, in real time. And it describes these four living creatures. Again, what's a living creature? <laughs> You know, and John does his best to sort of describe what these are. But it says that the four living creatures were all covered with eyes. Isn't that interesting? Kind of weird. But I'm convinced it's because two eyes were not enough to fully take in the glory and the majesty of God. These creatures were made to see Jesus covered with eyes. And every time they look at him, what happens? Worship pours out. Worship pours out again and again and again. And it's almost like it's like it's so intense that they got to close their eyes again. They cover, you know, the Bible also talks about how the, 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 these, these ones, they, they cover their faces with wings. Why? Because it's so, in, the beauty of Jesus is so intense. It's almost like we can't see. 
Maybe they take their, they, maybe they, they take their wings away. They open up their eyes again. What do they see? They see the glory of God again. And what happens? Glory spill, or, or, or worship spills out. And Revelation 4 says every time that they say, every time worship pours out, says the elders all fall down on the ground and worship him. And it's this cycle again and again and again and again. We are transformed when we see Jesus. We are transformed when we just say, Lord, help my blindness. And as we just say a little simple yes to him, he just gives more revelation, gives more glory to us.